the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 481 of the podcast. It's Carrie here. I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Ian Cron is back on the podcast. We are going to talk about how to lead in a season with no wins. What happens when you haven't been winning in two years? Overcoming the fear of getting healthy, something I've been wanting to talk about for a while, and how to write a new story. Today's episode is brought to you by Pro Media Fire. If you are looking for a new website and great social media in 2022, check out Creativo. You can do that at creativo.org slash carry. That's C-R-E-A-T-I-V-O dot org slash carry. And by the way, get your free copy of their book, Delegate to Elevate, by texting the word carry to 55123. Well, Ian Cron is a best-selling author, psychotherapist, Enneagram teacher, Episcopal priest, and the host of the wildly popular podcast, Typology, which has over 17 million downloads. He's also got a brand new book called The Story of You, an Enneagram Journey to Becoming Your True Self, which released uh, actually just a couple of months ago. So you're in for a treat for this one. Uh, and I just want to thank all of you for list, not only listening to the podcast, I know you pay with your time. Uh, you got a million other podcasts literally that you could listen to, but I'm really glad that we get to serve you and be alongside you. So wherever you happen to be, whether you're on a run, uh, maybe you're on a ride, maybe you're walking along the beach or chopping carrots for dinner. I don't know what it is. That's how I tend to listen to podcasts. Um, I'm really glad you're here. And if you enjoy the show and appreciate it, please leave a rating and review. We would absolutely love that wherever you listen to this podcast. And uh, make sure you check out some of the changes over at kerryneuhoff.com. we got a brand new website. I'll tell you more about that at the end and some exciting things that are going on. In the meantime, I imagine you're probably looking, especially if you're a small or mid-sized organization, for a website solution and a great social media solution, and you're looking for it at an affordable price. Let me introduce you to Creativo. Creativo is a brand new all-in-one creative outreach platform designed to impact your audience. With Creativo, you end up looking amazing online, you save time, you save money, and you utilize cross-platform management because it works on iPhone, Android, and desktop, all with the same experience. It's great for churches, nonprofits, schools, and entrepreneurs. And you can manage your social media and your website in minutes each week. So for a new website, and great social media in 2022, check out Creativo. For a limited time, listeners of this podcast get a lifetime founder's discount. And here's how you get it. Go to creativo.org slash carry. I'm going to spell that out for you. C-R-E-A-T-I-V-O dot org slash C-A-R-E-Y. Creativo.org slash carry. And let's talk about time and how 24 hours never seems to be enough to get everything done. As a church leader for a growing church or a business leader, you eventually realize, and I had to come to this <laughs> learning painfully in my own life, you can't do everything on your own, not well anyway. So your job is to be the visionary, but instead you probably find yourself spending countless hours on tasks that could easily and arguably better be done by someone else. That's where the powerful multiplying effects of delegation prove mission critical. So our friends at Belay, the incredible organization revolutionizing productivity with their virtual assistants, bookkeepers, and social media managers for growing churches, know the demands of all leaders too well. 
In fact, their first client was a pastor, and they've continued to serve them every day for over a decade. So to help you start delegating, Belay is offering their latest book, Delegate to Elevate, for free. In this book, learn how to reclaim time to focus on what only you can do by delegating and unleashing the powerful multiplying effects of entrusting others. To get your free copy of their book, simply text my name, the word Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123. In no time, you'll be going back to doing what only you can do. So that's Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123. And I got to tell you, delegation is a game changer. I didn't do well in the early days of leadership. It's a lot better now. Carrie to 55123 to pick that up. And now to my conversation with Ian Morgan Cron. Ian, welcome back. Carrie, it's always a pleasure to to be with you in any context. Well, I I enjoy that. And we've had a little bit of in-person and a lot of back and forth on our podcast, but there's a reason for that. I appreciate your voice. I appreciate what you do. We're going to get into your new book, The Story of You. But I want to start here because you got an interesting and eclectic background. So you're a psychotherapist, a former pastor, an Enneagram expert, and I'd love to know any advice based on any of those hats or a combination of the three, um, how to lead in a season where there aren't really a lot of wins. One of the things that really came into focus for me, um, you know, as we move into year three of crisis now, is it has been year after year after year of loss for a lot of leaders, not just medically, but I mean, you know, None of none of the metrics are pointing in the right direction. Roadblock after roadblock, disappointment after disappointment. What advice if you know you came in as a client and said, "Ian, I've just had no wins in two years." What? what how do you approach that? Well, I'm gonna probably the first thing that comes to my mind is a friend of mine recently in, in a twelve step recovery program that I've been a part of for quite some time. Um, uh, said to me the other day, you know, powerlessness is a superpower. Uh, and I was, you know, of course, that's part of the paradox, isn't it? That to mm. recognize that uh, when you recognize that your powerlessness, powerlessness, you're pretty, pretty powerless over people, places, things, and circumstances, and that you have no control Hmm. Over what happens in this life, right? You 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 have an op- you have control over how you respond to life, but as you know, life comes at us. You know, it life does not consult us about what it will do or not do, right? <laughs> uh, and and so for me, I I have found in my own life, in my own personal recovery from drug and alcohol addiction, you know, that ironically, it's a great paradox. That for me, life comes together when I embrace the fact that I have no control over it. And then what happens? I, I, I'm no longer at the center of my life. I actually become eccentric, out, placed outside the center. And then something's got to replace the center or life won't work. And that's where God comes in. And so, you know, for me, just reminding myself with kindness every day, I have no power over a pandemic. I, I have no power over these metrics. I have, and then suddenly I begin to feel this very powerful peace at the center of my person. Like, and guess what? That's okay. Uh, uh, because I think the tendency is in crisis is uh, it's like flying an airplane. 
Uh, and you've, you probably, when you, did you read the book? Um, oh gosh, what was it? Um, not the greatest generation. Um, oh, the one about the astronauts, you know, the one I'm talking about. Um, I have not read a lot of astronaut books. Oh so man. Well, there's this great not. thing in it. It was probably uh, Alan Shepard. I can't remember who it was. Um, he was flying a plane, uh, a test, test piloting a, a jet. And the thing went into a tailspin and began to auger, you know, spinning mm. down. And uh, he kept pulling back on the yoke, grabbing really, really hard on the yoke, trying to get the plane to level off. And he realized at some point, thank God, if he took his hands off the yoke, the plane automatically self-corrected. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And so to me, that that's amazing. this power of just, you got to let go and realize that if you trust in God, just let go. The plane tends to, tends to correct itself. I think that's just how God works. So if you're not comfortable going here, we don't have to go here, but you have been a frequent guest, Ian, and you have talked publicly about your addiction to alcohol and even in this new book, drugs. But I don't know a lot about that chapter of your life. Can you mm. give us a little, like, how did you end up there? When did that happen? And I hear more and more about the 12 steps all the time from a variety of sources and how helpful that has been to just millions of people globally. But if you don't mind going there, and if you don't, we can just move on and cover something else. Yeah, you know, I'm happy to do it. it it's, uh, you know, my that journey began for me as an adolescent. Uh, oh, wow. Growing up, you know, my, my own father was an alcoholic and drug yeah. addict who, who died uh, of that disease at 63. Um, never, never saw a day sober. Uh, I never saw him a day sober. And, um, you know, I have two immediate family members who are in recovery. And, uh, so we, we came by it honestly. How's that? Yeah, uh, that's and, fair. yeah. And then, you know, so my, my first foray into sobriety was at age 28. Um, and it was not, it has been, a, it was a bumpy road for, for, uh, quite some time. And, uh, but now I'm, I'm fortunate to say I'm sober and, uh, uh, you know, feel very, very fortunate. I, I feel like I'm one of the lucky ones, you know, because hmm. I've, I've seen a lot of people die from this disease. And I'm just glad that uh, I'm, not, I'm not part of that parade. Hmm. You know, there is a sense, and I'm, I'm not an expert in this by any stretch, but I think all leaders self-medicate to some extent. And that can be with food or drugs or alcohol, or it can be with recreation, or it can be with over-exercising. You know, I think the two comforts that I go to instinctively, because being a pastor for me, it was like, well, and I did, I did struggle with alcohol late in my teens and early 20s. And by the grace of God, was able to have that not have control over me at the end of the day. But food can have control over me, super easy. Uh, overworking, I think, can be a form of self-medication. And when leaders find themselves in a um, in a season like we're in right now, what are some of the the ways that you see? Like, what are some of the common paths for self-medication? And then, how do you kind of say, "Oh, that's what I'm doing," in in a moment like that? Like, what yeah. what brought you to that? And then, what has helped you see other leaders identify that challenge in their own life, Ian? Well, you know, I, um, here's, the, first of all, let's just start with this premise. 
all human beings are addicts. Mm -hmm. So the benefit of having a chemical addiction is, is that eventually everyone else knows about your addiction. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Right? And and it's just, and it's actually a blessing, you know, because some people will intervene and and you'll go to treatment uh, as I did and you'll, you'll get the help that you need. But there is, for a lot of people, there's this quiet desperation right? That Mm. comes with pornography Mm. or with, and I meet a lot of pastors with porn problems. Um, I mean, it's, it's so common that when one calls me on the phone and says, Hey, can we get together and talk? I instantly know what we're going to be talking about. Okay. (laughs) I know it's going to be porn. Yeah. Oh yeah. No question. Uh, and and 90% of the time I'm absolutely right. Uh, so porn, food, uh, sex, uh, you know, uh, Drugs and alcohol are not beyond the pale of pastors. No, you know, it's not. Um, and and the list goes on. People have an addiction to a, approval seeking. Some people mm-hmm. have, uh, you know, I get the. I mean, they, we don't just have one addiction. We have multiple medicators in our lives. Yeah, and I do think that that part of the journey to wholeness and healing for all of us is is having reckoning with those with those addictions and. Uh, like I said, I feel fortunate because, you know, uh, I was given a vocabulary and a path in the 12 steps that that has really helped me not only attack chemical addiction, but of many of the others that I have. Mm. I just apply the same principles to them. And um, so I strongly, I think every pastor, by the way, needs to read the first 164 pages alcoholic and alcoholics and alcoholic anonymous's big book you know which is yeah. kind of the yeah. the seminal text every alcoholic it's the first thing you have to read when when you come into recovery right um i i there's so much wisdom in it spiritual wisdom and uh that could be applied in communities and to their own personal lives and i actually just mentioned it the the power of powerlessness the the power mm. of realizing I'm not in control. This, this, you know how many pastors white knuckle it, and and it's it's also in the middle of it all is that um, uh, it's it's basically functional atheism, right? It's like mm. we we say we believe, but you know we got our hands so tight on the yoke as if as if it's like God, I will I will take your advice you know, under advisement. <laughs> but, but in the meantime, you're a lawyer, you know where that comes yeah, from. Yeah, you know, it's exactly. like, it's like, exactly. you know, uh, I'll take your counsel under advisement. And then, <laughs> but in the meantime, I'm going to keep my hand on the wheel just in case you don't come through. Hmm. And, and I just think there's so much peace that comes when you realize, you know, it's time to let go. It's just time to let go and, and let God, if you will. And I know these are, uh, you know, kind of tired ex- platitudes, but you know that doesn't mean they're not true. <laughs> so, I had this question pegged to ask you at some point in this interview, and I think this is a really good time to ask it because I haven't asked any guest about this before, Ian. But I, you know, my my addiction was basically workaholism, which landed me in burnout. And so I went to recovery for that, not in any formal treatment, but with counselors and coaches and a lot of, you know, painful reconstruction of my life after I burned out around age 40. Um, 
And it's funny because I remember in that season, you know, I was super driven, really ambitious, uh, and not all that was godly. (laughs) But I remember being terrified of changing because I thought that I would lose my superpower. I thought that, you know, oh, God's going to take my drive away. Or if I go get, quote, healthy and go see some therapists, then I'm going to lose the thing that grew this church from a handful of people to what it is today and what made me the leader I am. And of course, looking back on that now all these years later, I kind of laugh at that. But I also worry about, okay, what is the next hill God, God wants to, you know, take a look at in my life and what's the next issue he wants to it. I think there's a fear. And I've talked to a couple of other leaders just off mic, off the record about it. And they have expressed a very similar thing. Like if I really go and get well, Ian, what's left of me? Like, am I going to lose my superpower? Well, um, listen, I don't, I don't think God is interested in stripping you of that, um, that gift, right? That strength Mm of creating and building and leading, right? Um, But he, I do think God wants to contextualize it, right? I I do think that God wants us to stop over-identifying who we are with these these gifts, if you will. Because at that Mm. moment, when you over-rely on a gift, it becomes a curse. And and so I, I think... Uh, and you experience that with burnout and, and you know, or re- repeated patterns uh, in your marriage and with your children and with, you know, your health, your physical health and, and mm. all of that stuff. Um, so I don't, I think that God, if anything else, wants to make that gift healthy and even more effective. Because mm. as long as that gift, Carrie, is in service to your ego's agenda, right? It's like your ego says, yeah, but you know what? If I'm successful, everyone's going to love me. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, I do. And, and if you take that gift away, then people aren't going to admire me anymore. And by the way, that's my drug of choice. And so, and then God says, you know what? Like, that's actually, you know, to use the language I've been using these days, that's a broken story, Gary. Mm. That's a, that story mm. is a lie. And um, I'm not going to take away your drive and your gifts. If, if anything else, I, I'm going to just strip them of your egos being too attached to, to that so that, that you're free to use that gift in service to my agenda, not yours. Hmm. That is such a great answer, Ian. And, you know, I would say, gosh, 16 years after I burned out, that is the answer. I see it as a gift. And what I didn't realize at the time is God wasn't going to take away <laughs> my strengths. He was going to redeem them. That mm-hmm. he was going to say, okay, there's a nugget of good in there, but there's a whole lot of dysfunction. And I think I do that better in the rearview mirror than I do looking through the windshield at what's ahead. But I just really appreciate your take on that because I think we're probably not alone. I'm not alone in you know struggling with that. And just a word for leaders, this has been a great (laughs) first whatever 15 minutes of the conversation for leaders who are really struggling. And to that language of new story, which you have, you got a brand new book called The Story of You, which I would highly recommend. And um, I think most leaders are probably have seen the end of their rope, found the end of their rope, or at the end of the rope at some point in the last few years or currently, and they're longing for a new story. 
Uh, I love the way, and I realized you rewrote it significantly over the version that I read, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, But in the galley copy, you opened your book with signs that you're living in a broken story. And I thought that was really powerful. Um, Can you walk us through some of those signs, Ian? Sure. Well, you know, let me begin here that, you know, I think for sure this is true. That all human beings in early childhood, you know, they begin to craft a narrative or a story to make sense of what they're experiencing, right? It, mm. it, it's just inevitable that, that we, we look at our lives through the lens of an unfolding story. Mm? Mm. Now, those stories are really helpful for us in early childhood, right? They, they just help us make sense of, you know, who we are. It helps us explain who we are to ourselves and others. And it helps us explain how we think the world works. Typically, if not all the time, those stories are broken. Helpful, but mm. broken. When we unconsciously drag those stories into adult- adulthood and continue to inhabit them, they wreak havoc on our lives, right? So let me give you an example. For You just gave me an example, right? Somewhere I bet early in childhood, you picked up the real or perceived message that in order to find love, I must be successful, appear successful, and avoid failure at all costs, right? And then, now that story helped you make sense of the world as a little person. You internalized that message, you, you picked it up, you wove it into your identity, and then, you know, you dragged it into childhood, into adulthood, and eventually you crashed. Why? Because the story failed you. Right. It's like it's an old story. It's an old script. It's a bad script. Time for a new story. Right. Now, that's an example, one example of how you know you're living in a broken story. That's a symptom. You crash. And most people crash repeatedly and then just double down on what they did before to see if they can make it work. You know what I mean? Uh, and so you probably had multiple crashes before you had the final big one. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, there were warning signs all over the place. Sure. And so I think others uh, might, uh, for different people, include the feelings of depression, right? This feeling that my life is smaller than I'd hoped. Um, You know, this, uh, it could be a physical condition. I think people carry this stuff in their bodies, you know, uh, whether it's just, you know, physical ailments that start to emerge uh, as I think your soul sometimes is saying to you, this story is not working. And it comes out just in different areas of your life. You, you, you start to see repeating, self-defeating, self-limiting patterns in the rearview mirror of your life. They just keep coming up over and over and over again. And, you know, when I've had, as a therapist, clients, they come in and they describe their lives. And when I say to them, you know, you're stuck in an old story, hmm. they look at me like I invented fire. Yeah, just the just the language of narrative, right? The just sort of changes everything for them. It's like, yeah, in fact, I'm living in a story that I didn't write. And and you you get to say to them, well, you know, you're the narrator, right? Like you have <laughs> agency to change the story. And in the story of you, obviously, I, I I talk people through how do I change my story from one that was a, that is essentially a, I was living in a children's book. How do I now begin to to yeah. write a story that is aligned with my values and my my core beliefs that actually help me to become the highest expression of myself in the world? 
It's so good. You know, it reminded me probably we're pushing 10 years ago that uh, one of the therapists I've had a handful that have played a really instrumental role over the last 20 years of my life. And one of them who I didn't see that often, but he really played a, a, a pivotal role. He helped me write down a new story. And he mm-hmm. said that. He said, you know what? You're living in an old story. And so he and I wrote part of it together. And he, he you know, then I kind of finished it and brought it back to him. And I, haven't, I don't look at it all the time anymore because I feel like it has become the narrative that I'm living out of now. But when I'm having a bad day or a bit bad season or I feel anxiety rising or something, I will go and dust off that story and read it. And it is, you're right, it is a superpower. It is really powerful. And when you root it into who you believe you are in Christ, you know, as a Christian, as a person of faith, uh, I think it's not only like a powerful mind trick, I think it anchors your life in the truth as opposed to a bunch of things that were not the truth. So Yes, absolutely. And what's interesting to me, and I, what, what I'm most pleased about in this book, having written about the Enneagram before, you know, I think that there are, these are nine personality types, and we don't have mm. to go into those today because we've done it before, but, but there are nine personality types in the Enneagram. And what I came to realize is, wait a minute, these aren't just personality types. These are kind of nine stories that we huh. see people live in over and over and over again in the po- general population, right? And when people say to me, nine stories for a couple of billion people, I'm like, well, you know, in, literary, in literature and film, all the great literary critics have said there's only basically seven plots, yeah. right? And, and, you know, just a, it, with, with, with all the details changed, it's, it's the same with us, right? Now, what's interesting to me about each of those nine stories is that the underlying premise of every single one of them each of them is in direct opposition to the gospel. Mm. So if you're an Enneagram 2, the helper, the belief that you can't be loved apart from meeting the needs of others while at the same time refusing to acknowledge your own personal needs, where in the gospel does it say that you can't be loved until you meet everybody's needs? Wow. Nowhere. Yeah. And yeah. that's the, I can go through all nine stories and say, look, and this is the premise of the whole book. All transformation is story transformation, period. (laughs) If you want to bring about change in your life, you can move the furniture around or you can get to the root of the problem, which is that the underlying premise of your old story is broken and it's time to rewrite it. Is it a reduction to say that these are beliefs we hold about ourselves or just so people understand what we're talking about with story? Is it the the looping narrative that we play back like, week after week? Like what, what is, what is a story? How would you define that? Yeah, that's a great question. So we, uh, I think all of us have a story that we adopt in order to explain to ourselves and others who we are and how we think the world works. Right. Hmm. Uh, and that story is made up of, uh, what I call false taken for granted beliefs that we picked up as little people uh, it's made up of all these internalized messages that we picked up, not just from our parents it's, it's, or our siblings. It's from peers, teachers, coaches, our culture stories. And, and we, we just pick them all up and they all get woven in, kneaded into the dough of our early childhood story. And we never think to ourselves, wait a minute, have I ever really sat back and questioned whether or not that story is true? Because we just sort of 
take it for granted. Like, oh, this is my story. This is how it is. It's like, really? Like, have you ever interrogated those old beliefs? Have you have you ever questioned the old internalized messages and 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 uh, uh, begun to have begun the 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 journey of rewriting them, reauthoring your life? Um, and I, you know, obviously, in, in, it's a very Someone might say, yeah, but how do you do it? And that kind of is part of what the book is, is trying to say is like, yeah, you can do it. Here's a beginning process that you can use to change the story of your life and really um, become what I, we might call your true self, but just the highest, best expression of who you are. Yeah, it's funny how those messages get embedded. You know, I'm thinking about things I learned and I was pretty significantly asthmatic until I was in my mid 30s. But I grew up with this idea that I wasn't an athlete. You know, mm-hmm. I was tall, which means I was usually the tallest kid in my class, which means I wasn't very coordinated compared to some of the um, slimmer, faster kids. I, my asthma really, I almost died from it a bunch of times in mm-hmm. my teenage years. And, you know, so it's like, okay, that's out for me. And then it turned out to be carpet that I was allergic to. Who knew? And it was more the dust under the carpet. So we did this big renovation 20 years ago in our house and uh, got rid of all the carpet, not for health reasons, but design reasons. And all of a sudden my asthma got very manageable. But I found like, you know, I picked up skiing again this year, which is strange for a guy in his mid to late fifties, but I have to battle the, oh, I'm not a skier. Oh, I'm not an athlete. So it's trivial things like that, but it's also deeper things like I have to perform to be loved, right? Is it the whole package? It is. I love that illustration. I'm writing it down because I'm going to use it on my next interview. Um, yeah. I, 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 uh, look, I think what came to my mind is you were saying it, right? Like, and that's a fairly, you know, uh, well, it's a great illustration. You know, I am not an athlete. And maybe mm. the question we should, the answer we should put to that is identify that message and all the other ones and then look at them and go, who says Right, right. Who says, right? Uh, well, I mean, I don't know. I've just picked it up as a little kid, that message. No one, I don't know if anyone ever directly told me that, but that's that's what I perceive the message to be. And mm. I, I'm just encouraging people as they write their new story to say, who says? Who says that's true? Yeah. Um, and, then, and then be able to say, as you rewrite the news story, you might say, I'm not a great athlete, but that doesn't mean I'm not an athlete, you know, uh, you know, uh, because there are so many parts of ourselves we've shut down and turned off and and walked away from defeated without even knowing we have, you know. And uh, I just I love that what you just said because it just triggered in me. Who says? Well, it's so good because you know one of the things Seth Godin says over and over again, not about our self story, but just about culture and creating a tribe, is he says people like us do things like this, right? So. Again, I picked up cycling 15 years ago, and I'm not I'm not going to be on the Tour de France at any point in the near future, not ever. But like I cycle a couple thousand kilometers a year and it's like, oh, I guess, you know, yeah, I'm a cyclist and I do this for a couple more seasons and I'm a skier and I picked up running in my 50s and it's like, yeah, I guess I can run. I'm a, I'm a runner. And so you eventually, if it's just people like us do things like this, right? Like I got up early, so therefore I'm an early riser. Um, I think rewriting that narrative is just so important. And again, back to what we started with, so many leaders need a new narrative right now, Ian. So many. Yes. Jeez. Yes. Absolutely. And I, you know, going back to 
um, my uh, my own personal story, which we mm. began with. I think the message I picked up as a little kid, and it, it's a the the Enneagram Four individualist, which I am, perfectly articulates it. Um, that I'm a, a broken person. I, I'm missing something inside. I don't know what to call it, but it's just the, this feeling like I'm I have a, a fatal flaw that no one else has. They, they seem to move through the world with more ease and comfort than I do. Uh, the message I heard growing up in the family I did was you'll, you'll never belong. You're kind of an oddball, you, you know, and I can go on and oh, on and on. Gosh. And, and, and I pick up that story and you know what, in a weird way, Carrie, it helped me make sense of what was happening to me as a little person. Huh. But I How did dragged, it help you? How did it help? Well, because I, because all of us need to say, well, why is it that I'm having these experiences? I mean, you know, a bad story is better than no story. <laughs> right yeah yeah i mean and, and and we become very loyal to those old stories the broken stories right because at least they're the devil you know mm. right and then i brought that into adulthood and as i mentioned earlier in my journey of recovery that's where it ended do, do you know what i'm saying yeah um I, you know, in the new iteration of the book, which I, I'm sorry you haven't a chance to read, I started with this illustration of my first sponsor, and um, he heard me give a talk one night. It was a, it was a at what's called a speaker's meeting, and and you're as as the speaker, you're supposed to tell your life story, right? And I told it just like I was explaining it to you just then, and at the end of it, seventy year old guy, he said to me, Ian, do you ever wonder if you're living in the wrong story? And I remember I was a young man, but the question threw me back on my heels. And it wasn't for decades before I, it, that, it, but I, it haunted me. And it's taken yeah. me decades. And it was the Enneagram that helped me see this uh, array of, of nine broken stories and just how powerful it is to break free from the lies of your old story. To look at your old story and go, who says? Right? <laughs> I you love that. You've got me stuck on that now, man. Who I says? I love that, man. Gonna, who says? Who I'm going to put it on my wall. On my wall, I'm going to put up a sign that says, who says? That is fantastic. And those narratives can be like, I'm not a leader. Uh, I won't amount to anything. I'll never be successful. I'll, I'll always be broke. I mean- I'm too old. I'm too old. Oh my gosh. You and I, we were talking about that before we started recording. Like, how did we end up here? And we're not exactly millennials, you know, you and I. And yet your life can take you in very surprise. How old were you when you wrote The Road Back to You? 55. 55. Wow. Yeah. And, and Chasing Francis was, a, was your first? 45. 45. Yeah. Okay. You and I, my first book was 40 and it was a co-author. Then 2012, I would have been 52 or 47. 47 when I wrote my second one. I don't know, 45, 47. I'm not very good at math on the spot. See, old story. Anyway, that is just That's true. right. <laughs> that well, is and, just and, true. And by the way, one, 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 one old story we might tell ourselves, and I think this is um, probably something your leader should hear, is I'm too young. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, and so right. now, there are some things that you might be too young for developmentally, but I think we, we tend to universalize that idea that I'm too young in areas of our lives that we shouldn't. Hmm. Um, and, and so 
again, these, these messages are, that we pick up are so powerful and they create such broken, distorted stories. And the good news is, is you have the freedom, you have the power, and I think the responsibility to those you love to rewrite that narrative. Having had 30 seconds to think, I was 45 when I published my first book, 47, the first solo book. And I think I was 49 when we launched this podcast. So yeah, it's mm. not too late. And you and I are still still going strong, right? And yes, I love that, that you're not too young. So new information to me from the story of you was that each Enneagram has a passion. I knew that. But also has a passion that sometimes works against us that can be transformed into a virtue. Now, in previous episodes, and we'll link to them in the show notes, we've gone through every Enneagram type, or people can look at the Typology podcast for that. And I think a lot of our listeners would be aware of that. But if you could go through the list of all the nine different types and their passion and their virtue, and just give a brief commentary on it, I think that would be really helpful for people, Ian. Oh, great question, Carrie. So um, to define passion in the context of the Enneagram, we all have passions. Like I have a passion for eating plant-based food. Right. I have a passion. I love yoga. I know it's mm. crazy. I'm very woo-woo, okay? <laughs> uh, I, have, uh, I have a passion for running. I have, you know, for music, for songwriting. Those are good passions, okay? Yeah. Those are interests that I have about which I have a lot of excitement and energy. But in the Enneagram, the passion is this powerful, emotional, motivating um, thing that, or in, like coloring your internal world, that fuels the old story, the negative patterns of your Enneagram type, right? Um, and so for the ones, it's anger. And mm. it, it comes out as resentment that other people are, are not as concerned with perfecting the world as the one feels they should be. Right. And the yeah. one is a little, the one is resentful that other people are not uh, doing, not doing their part in making the world a, a better, perfect, more ordered place. And um, that they have to now pick up the slack that others aren't, you know, doing. And so for them, the journey, part of the journey to wholeness in the new story is to move from anger and resentment to serenity. That's the virtue mm. of the one. And serenity might be summed up in the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Like when you meet a one who has finally embraced that, oh God, you just feel all the oxygen come back into their lives, right? Mm. Now, the other word that we use for passion in the Enneagram is deadly sin, right? right? So yeah. that's really what we mean by passion. So for the twos, it's pride. And they're helpers. They believe that they uh, are actually have less needs than other people. That's part of the pride. Part of the pride is believing that they are more attuned to your needs than you are. Mm -hmm. And part of the pride is believing that it's up to them to meet your needs, whether you ask them to or not. Right? Yeah. And so what's the what's the virtue it's humility it, it's the knowledge that they don't have all the time treasure talent and energy and resources to meet all of your needs or anybody's needs if i can just do a quick editorial comment on that i've worked with so many wonderful twos and the this is why i love your work and the work you're doing here the last thing i would diagnose them with is pride 
Yes. But when you, when, cause you think these people are so humble, they're always serving, but you don't know the internal thought bubble that is motivating that. And you don't see that. <laughs> and I think, pardon me, what you do such a great job of is pointing out to twos and also people who care about twos that no, there's a deeper narrative and their service isn't always motivated in the most pure ways, which, you know, none of us no. are pure. <laughs> no. And, and the, you know, as a friend of mine likes to say, if, 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 if you're looking for flattery, don't play with the Enneagram. I mean, the Enneagram, <laughs> right? The Enneagram yeah. is going to reveal that which is best about you is what's worst about you. And what's worst about you is what's best about you. Right. <laughs> uh, and so, um, and, and you see here how the passion and the virtue, it, the passion in the message, these underlying beliefs that were, they're unconscious, right? But, yeah. but when, when we exhume them, interrogate them and say, really, who says that I need to meet everybody's needs before I can be loved and cared for? Hmm. That's a wow. lie. That, okay. So, and so then the, that's the old story, man. Yep. All right. So then we got threes if we're going through sequentially. Yeah, I'll, I'll go faster. Okay. So threes are called the performers. And um, the passion of the three, the deadly sin of the three is deceit. Um, you know, threes have this underlying belief that they have to be successful. If they're not successful, if they're not go-getters, and if they don't win every match, if they don't build the biggest church, they don't give the Sermon on the Mount every Sunday, if they don't, you know, blah, 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 yeah. then, then, then they won't be loved. And, mm. and so the journey for the three is to, to move from deceit to authenticity. I say deceit because threes have this uncanny ability to wear masks or personas to win the admiration of whoever it is they happen to be with in the moment. It could be in front of a church. It could be in front of a board. It could be in front of a cop being stopped on the side of the road. And, and it's just, okay, who do I have to become to make this person or group of people love me uh, and admire me? And so the problem is over time, if you continue to wear that many masks, you forget who you actually are, mm. right? You, and that's the deceit. They deceive themselves. Now, the journey to authenticity for a pastor or a leader is so powerful because then, this is how I would say it, you know this, you've seen pastors do this. They get up front and they share some deep secret about themselves and how God is meeting them. And you think to yourself, what, what, why doesn't this sound very genuine? It, it mm. almost sounds like they're spinning the story to make themselves the hero, like they're trying to connect with me. But it, and I call that calculated transparency. Mm. It, it's, it's calculated. Whereas authenticity, it, it, when you feel someone being genuinely authentic, the hair on the back of your neck stands up because mm. you know you can feel it that this person is telling you something uh, profoundly deep about themselves in an appropriate manner. You know, you're as a pastor or a leader, you're not trying to do therapy with your congregation or your team. That's a disaster. Um, but but the authenticity is uh, a very vulnerable um, and and beautiful thing that that can reap incredible benefits in, in people's lives. Not not just the person doing it, but the people that receive it. Um, fours. I've already described the four. So envy is our deadly sin. Why? I'm envying every, I'm comparing myself to other people all the time. I'm envying that they seem to have something I'm missing inside mm. and their life just seems happier than mine. Um, and 
for me, the journey is to equanimity, which I wish somebody would preach on equanimity, which is this um, uh, kind of uh, uh, ability to remain emotionally stable in the midst of whatever life throws at you. Mm. And I say that for fours because fours tend to uh, be tyrannized by their feelings. They can get whipsawed all over the place and they have no emotional balance at times, right? Um, fives, the individualists, they have to move from the deadly sin of avarice uh, to the to to the virtue of what's called non-attachment, and that would require a lot of explanation. So, yeah. let, uh, let can, me just can say you this give about- us just the the quick twenty first century definition of avarice. I know it's a historic term, but what what yeah. is how is avarice different from greed, or is it yeah. a synonym for that? What what do you mean by well, avarice? Um, in the it is a it is synonymous with greed, but in the enneagram world, what it really means is. Um, is about the five's tendency to hoard personal information, um, their incredible bed of knowledge that they're continually feeding, um, their solitude, privacy, um, their sort of a detachment from the world, uh, from being overly involved. So there's a lot of this, minimizing needs, uh, all that stuff. But they have to move toward non-attachment, which which is the journey of, of letting go of all the strategies that they use to maintain this self-sufficient, wildly independent, uh, at times emotionally distant life, right? Mm. Um, should I go on really fast? Yeah, no, this is good. Right. This is really so good. Sixes, sixes, the deadly sin is fear, and the journey that they have to make is toward faith. And it, it, it is this faith that all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well, as the great Julian once said. Uh, and just to um, have this belief that God meant it when he said, do not be afraid, and that God really has their back. And sixes, again, that's a little bit surprising for sixes, because sixes are people who, if I've got this right, and please correct uh, they're critical up front, but loyal to the death. In other words, I got a bunch oh, of questions and once they're answered, Hey, I'm in like, this is, this yes. is a blood relationship here. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're very anxious people, typically chronic warriors. And, uh, they are always rehearsing and planning what they'll do when catastrophe strikes. And right. so. It's been a lot know, of catastrophe so, lately. <laughs> For real, well, it's been, <laughs> right? I, it's been, I, for more than any other type, this has been the hardest season for sixes. Yeah, um, yeah. Sevens, the enthusiasts, they have to go from what's called gluttony. The now that makes sense because they're always it's always more, more, right. more, and it's usually more fun, more adventure, more spontaneity, more um, stimulating and fascinating ideas, being obsessed thinking about a future filled with unlimited possibilities, all in service to avoiding painful emotional feelings, thoughts, and circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. So they have to move to what we call the virtue of sobriety, which is this capacity to stay in the present moment, to stay focused because they're very distractible, right? Lots of church leaders are sevens, three sevens and eights, tons of them. Uh, and they're incredibly charismatic and life-giving and joyful, but you know they got to be careful that they don't create Neverland in their brain where they can become Peter Pan and never grow up, right? So, yeah, what were we gonna say? 
I was going to say, uh, I've got a couple of sevens very, very close to me in my life. So I'm just curious of, of drilling down on that. What would a sure. typical childhood narrative be for a seven? Yeah, well, a lot of times you'll meet sevens that um, have experienced in a real or perceived way um, some uh, ex- some d- painful or different, difficult experience in which they didn't feel supported. And so in order to cope with it, you know, they created a narrative where it's like, if I can just create a universe that is uh, so positive and sunny, in which I can always find a silver lining, in which I never really have to deal with hurtful or painful feelings, everything's going to be okay, right? And so, you know, uh, like, uh, it's interesting in therapy with sevens, like, this might be a typical thing. I'll ask them a question and they'll, it's a serious question. I can see it becoming kind of emotional or painful for them. And then they tell a joke. Do you know what I mean? It'll be oh, like, listen, yeah. I have a seven wing. So, and, yeah, and I have yeah. sevens in my family. So yes, right. I'm so familiar like, with that dynamic. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, my father drank too much. My parents got divorced, you know, Hey, but you know what? My mom got remarried and my, you know, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like, no, 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 no. Let's go back to what you, it, and you can see them kind of like not wanting to go there. Right. Mm. Um, so sobriety and eights, the journey is from lust, not necessarily in the sexual sense of the word, although not necessarily, I'm not saying it's not necessarily in that it's sense. It's the only the one in the road back to you that got sex triggered. So yeah, that's yeah, right. right. I remember that. So, yeah. But it's really this out of control lust for life. Um, mm. It's this desire to have this passionate, in a, not in a great way, engagement with people in the environment all the time. Um <laughs> in a way that can be really overwhelming and, and, yeah. and really born of some anger um, that, they, that they have. It's too intense. Yeah. It's just too much intensity. And their journey really, I think, is to what we call innocence. That's the virtue mm-hmm. of the eight. And, and the, the, the virtue there is um, really related to the, you know, eights are always trying to mask vulnerability and weakness from other people, Yeah. right? when they're not very healthy. It's like, I don't want you to see the soft side here, people, because I don't want to be betrayed and hurt. See how that's an old story? Mm-hmm. That that was born somewhere back there, right? And uh, the journey to them is to be innocent, and that is to be ch- have that childlike posture, not childish, but childlike posture of saying, hey, you know what? Um, I can, like a child, reveal in appropriate ways my vulnerability and my weakness in the world because that is the currency of relationship. That's how relationships get formed. Yeah, I, I did such an ape thing uh, just uh, just earlier this week as we're recording this interview. Uh, I was in Toronto to shoot a course. So I had gone down on the Sunday night. The crew was coming down Monday and Tuesday. And we got the biggest snowstorm we've had in three decades. And so mm-hmm. literally there was no snow on the ground Sunday night. Monday morning, there's two feet of snow. And, you know, imagine snow falling in New York, Chicago, like that. Like we have, you know, machines for that. We have, we have uh, snow plows, but you just can't deal with two feet of snow right away. So literally I went into siege mode without even thinking. I'm reflecting on it for the first time because this is hours old. And uh, the crew was like, no, nah, we got a four wheel drive. We'll make it. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. But like literally, Ian, we are having to park three blocks away because the road is inaccessible. We're hauling gear in from a distance. 
and we're making it happen no matter what. And I'm like, everybody else is canceling. We're not canceling. We're going to do this. We're going to shoot this thing. And I'm looking back on that now and going, gosh, that's such an, is that an eight thing? Like, is that what that was? Like just command and control and we're going to get, and we did get it done and it turned out great, but it's like, you know, when I'm pressed, that is my default. It's like weak people cancel. I'm going to go ahead. Boom. Weak people cancel. And listen, I'm going to get up on your grill. (laughs) So I'm going to use you. I'm going to get up in your grill just a little bit, just, just to serve as an illustration, right? Yeah. So the, really the, the old story of the eight says this, we live in a, in a, uh, a dog eat dog universe where the where the the weak get taken advantage of by the strong who always dominate. And I will I will vow to myself never to be weak. I will not be the one that gets taken advantage of. So I will assert strength and power over the environment and circumstances to mask from myself and others the truth of my own weakness and vulnerability. Now, wow. now just think about this for a second, Carrie. And here's where I'm going to get up in your grill. When that story runs riot, right? You put people's lives at risk <laughs> driving out to that gig. Yep. Instead of, you know what I mean? And I know no, that I, sounds I thought harsh. about that. Yeah. And so, you know, I think when we rewrite the story, it's not that we don't feel the tug of the old story wanting to launch again, but, you know, the ability uh, to say, you know what, you know, this is part of an old story thing. And it's not only going to affect me, it's going to affect other people. I, I need to let it go and maybe have the weakness, uh, not the weakness isn't the precise word, but uh, to say, you know what, this isn't going to work today. Mm. And that's okay. It's all right. It doesn't yeah. work. It was interesting. You know, I think 35 year old me would have pushed ahead no matter what and made people leave their house. The crew was already en route by the time we realized how mm-hmm. bad it was. And they're like, don't worry about it. But there was a staff member who uh, school was canceled. And I just said, please stay home. She was going to come home in right. the after, come down in the afternoon. Uh, I said, just stay home. And so she did. But you know, that's a really good, and I, I had that thought, to be honest with you, kind of after it's like, ooh, did I put anyone's life at risk or whatever? But it's funny how your instincts just kick in for me in crisis without powerful. thinking. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, nines, nines, we're so nice, we we don't want to forget them, no. No, we never want to forget the nines. So the nines are called the peacemakers. I think the old story of the nine and the passion of the nine uh, are revealed in the the deadly sin of sloth. Doesn't necessarily mean physical laziness, because nines are often manically busy. The problem is that they're often busy with things that are inessential. Uh, and so for, for the nine, sloth is really the story that their, their presence doesn't really matter. And it's just better to merge with the preferences, the viewpoints and the agenda of another person or the group to not, to not invest energy in their own self development as human beings. And so their journey is to the virtue of what's called right action. And right action is the ability to stand up for your own life, to invest in yourself, to, to find, as Mary Oliver says, your one wild and precious life, to have your own voice in the world and assert it into the world. Uh, and I think that's what, what right action is, is all about. And now that we've finished them, I think, we, I, think I can just sort of put a, a period on the sentence, which is to say, just please note, how all of those stories are in direct opposition to the story of grace. All of them. 
The, I just, those, the underlying premise of each of those stories is a lie. It's a broken story. It's an old story from childhood. And the Enneagram, uh, and in the story of you, it's really showing us, all right, so here are the stories. How do I break free and rewrite a new one that is more reflective of how I know, who I know I am as the beloved one in a world um, where, um, you know, that continues to feed the lies. How do I live a new story? On that note, you use a metaphor or an acronym, I guess, SOAR, uh, as yes. a way to write your own story. Can you walk us, the new story, can you yeah. walk us through that little roadmap, Ian, and what each yeah, letter stands for? Sure. So um, SOAR, S-O-A-R. The first one is C. Um, you know, the great author Wendell Berry, yeah. Uh, he he once wrote, if you don't know where you're from, you'll have a hard time saying where you're going. <laughs> and uh, I really believe in that, that the therefore the first step of transformation of your story with the Enneagram is to see where your old story began, <laughs> to really uh, unearth the hurtful events, the unchallenged, taken for granted uh, false beliefs, and the unhelpful in internalized messages from childhood that continue to rule your life today. And, and I, I simply call that your origin story, right? Like, where did this all start? Why did I get in this story, right? Then the second step is to own it. And now, this is a hard step, but it, it involves exploring both the shadow sides as well as the strengths of your, of your story. And it's uncomfortable, but it's healing. Uh, hmm. And so, for example, you know, you, well, we just gave you an example, right? As an eight, you might say, gosh, my insistence on being in control and driving, driving, driving has hurt my relationships in this way, my marriage or my relationship with my kids, or I've burned out and lost too many people in my company because they just couldn't keep up with my, you know, my intensity, or I intimidate, I've intimidated too many people. And you know what I mean? It's just, Oh, hey, yeah. man, you gotta, all of the above you know, at different seasons. Yep. Right. So you got to own how the old story has has continued to uh, hurt you, helped you as a little guy, but now mm. is working against you. You got to do that. Next step is to awaken. And again, this is partly awakening to the old messages, the, in, the all that stuff, and also beginning to realize when they've taken control again. We have to learn how to live awake, Right. Uh, you know, it's interesting how many Christian, great Christian thinkers over the last thousand years, would, if you were to summarize their teaching, it would all come down to this, wake up, just wake up, right? Like come out of the sleep, the auto, the autopilot, the trance of your old story, like, well, just wake up right? and see it for what it is. And then last is rewrite. And, and really that involves really sitting down as you did with your therapist, right? And uh, one of the things I encourage people to do in it, in this one step is I want you to, to for example, name the, the give, your, give your old story a title as if it were a memoir, right? Mm. And for me, the, the, the title of my old story is Lost Boy. And mm. the, the story, the title I gave to my new story when I began this work was Redeemed Man. Wow. And and so, man, the, just even that little piece of the exercise of rewriting is so powerful to be able to say, ah, that's Lost Boy's story, but I don't live in it anymore. My story is called Redeemed Man. And mm. it's, a, it's a powerful exercise. I, I, I've seen it reduce 
count, not countless, but many, many people as a therapist, as a priest, as a, as all of those things, I've seen it reduced, you know, big, big, big men and women to, to tears when they realize, yeah. oh man, that was the old story. I, that's the story I'm still stuck in. But who says? <laughs> right, right. I, I say the new story is called Redeemed Man. And I, I help people learn in, in the book how to actually go through the process of rewriting. What are some other elements of your new story, Ian? Oh man, so many. Um, the belief, the, the, now the new belief that there's nothing missing in me, hmm. that that was an old piece of the story, uh, that, that, not, that everybody has suffered in this life, not just me. That's, that's part of the new story, which has given me more compassion and empathy and, and kind of healed me of being, you know, um, I don't know, terminally unique. You know what I mean? Like, just, <laughs> just like, oh, no, my suffering is more special than other people's. But it's like, no, it's not. Uh, and, and, you know, um, how about this? The, the old story was, Ian, you're unworthy of love and relationship and intimacy. And in the new story, it's like, no, I am worthy of love and intimacy and relationship, not just with my wife, but with my children and with my friends and, and with my God. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's part of the new story. And, you know, so much of this man is just waking up. It's like going, oh, yeah, I'm waking up. Oh, there was this old story. Now I see it. And it's like waking up and saying, I got to rewrite the new one. Boy, there's a lot of beauty in that new story. There really is. And, and thanks for sharing that. All right, last question for you, brain research. Uh, you do talk a little bit about, uh, you know, you're always learning, we're always learning about um, what the brain is doing. What role, if any, does the brain play in shaping our stories? Yeah, well, it's powerful. Now, I'm not an expert on, you know, neuroplasticity or all the research mm. that's been done. Uh, we do know now, we used to think that the brain, after a certain point in adulthood, couldn't create new pathways, right? That they were kind of yeah. ossified. They were too hard. But we now know for a fact that uh, we we can, for sure. And we now have the brain scans to prove it. You know, we have the strong enough technology to see it. So these, these stories are deeply embedded. They're sticky. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, And they yeah. are loops. They do loop, right? Uh, and And we just tell ourselves the same story over and over and over again. In fact, research has shown that about 80% of the thoughts you and I have every single day, we've already had multiple wow. times. It's not like we're running new material, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like how, many, like how many people do we know that are stuck in the loop of, I'm a piece of crap? Yeah. And that loop yeah. is running all the time, man. And, you know, part of the, the journey of healing is toward interrupting the circuit on those loops, mm-hmm. right? And, and I'd say that, this is part of what makes the journey of rewriting your story difficult. And so you, you have to learn strategies, uh, which I mentioned in the book, for knowing when the old story is like a siren, you know, is going, come back, you know, and it's like <laughs> we, we find ourselves falling back into it. And at which point, you know, we have to very compassionately and with a little bit of a sense of humor say to ourselves, do you really want to go back there? Because it doesn't serve you anymore. Uh, and so I do think that the brain can learn a new story. Mm. 
Ian, I'm so glad you continue to develop and do new work in this field. And I think you helped a lot of leaders today. So tell us where they can find you, the major channels. And then obviously the book is called, for those of you watching on YouTube, it's called The Story of You. And it's all about an Enneagram journey to becoming your true self. You can get that anywhere books are sold, but where can people connect with you online? Yeah, of course, they can go to ianmorgancron.com, I-A-N-M-O-R-G-A-N-C-R-O-N.com, learn about my courses, uh, learn about my other books, um, you know, all the different offerings that, that we have. And of course, at Ian Morgan Cron across all those social channels. That's great. Ian, thank you so much. Thank you, Kerry. Well, I thought that was uh, some really good advice about how to continue leading when you really haven't had any wins. And it's been a tough go for a lot of you. And I just want you to know we're in your corner. I hope these conversations help. And we would love to hear from you. If you haven't yet left a rating and review, please do so. You can do that wherever you listen to the podcast. And of course, we got show notes and transcripts for you and the whole deal. So you can get that at kerrynewhoff.com slash episode. You ready? 481. Just kerrynewhoff.com slash episode 481. Thank you to our partners. If you're looking for a new website and great social media this year, check out Creativo. Listeners of this podcast for a very limited time get a free lifetime founders discount simply by going to creativo.org slash carry and get your free copy of the book Delegate to Elevate from Belay by texting the word carry, C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123. That's carry to 55123. Next episode, we got Joshua Becker and we talk about something I'm finding very compelling, becoming minimalist. Here's an excerpt. No, no. Mm. The best way to say it is I found intentionality in my life in ways I hadn't before. Like when I started taking van loads of things to Goodwill or Salvation Army. I was like, why did I have so much stuff that I didn't need? And it occurred to me that I was just living a pretty unintentional life. So if you subscribe, you get that automatically. You don't have to worry about finding the episode. It will find you. If you haven't subscribed yet and you're new, first of all, welcome. Secondly, uh, do subscribe. It's free wherever you get your podcasts. Also coming up, We've got Francesca Gino, Levi Lusco, and Voskamp, Dave Ramsey. So excited for that conversation. Andy Stanley, Susan Kane, Chris Bale, Trip Crosby, well, and a whole lot more. That's uh, all coming your way this year, trying to bring you the best conversations we know how to do. And uh, if you like this episode, you can get an awful lot more over at theartofleadershipacademy.com. I would love to welcome you there. We've actually got a brand new kerrynewhoff.com as well. We just uh, uploaded that, got that whole site rebuilt recently. But the heart of it is now something brand new me and my team are doing at the Art of Leadership Academy. If you're tired of the insane tone and dialogue online, you're looking for other leaders you can trust, you're looking for peers and mentors, as well as access to all of my courses, all of my premium courses for one low price, check it out. It's the Art of Leadership Academy. Uh, it's brand new and you can find it all at theartofleadershipacademy.com. I would love for you to discover the premium on-demand courses, live monthly coaching hosted by me, monthly staff training. I'll do it for your team or give you my notes so you can train your team and a community of top tier leaders all in one. 
I graduated from seminary, didn't learn how to run a church. I graduated from law school. Nobody taught me how to run a law firm. Uh, we teach you the ins and outs of leadership at the Art of Leadership Academy. So head on over there today, theartofleadershipacademy.com. We'll see you inside. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll catch you next time on the podcast. I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.